Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello, Mary Goulet. Hello. Richie Ote, what's up, my brother? How are you? How are you? All is good. Good. All is good. Good, good, good. Wade's got it under control in the studio. Kelly's got it under control. I'm thinking back at headquarters, but with the new media summit coming up, you know, as I explained, Kelly's plate at this moment is a little overflowing. Drinking from a fire hose. Drinking from the fire hose, just a little bit. Welcome uh, to... This episode, I'm super excited. Uh, it, it's funny, you know, we we dance in certain worlds and, and we know of certain people and for whatever reason, your paths just don't cross. And uh, today's, today's guest is someone that I have known of and followed uh, and admired for, uh, for longer than probably he would like to admit. <laughs> Certainly longer than I would Did like to admit. Him? Yeah, you know, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, and we're going to be talking here very, very soon uh, with Rich Sheffron, uh, the one and only Rich Sheffron. And, you know, it, it's funny because Rich and I actually um, share a lot in common, not the least of which is being online for a very long time. Uh, launched on, I launched on CompuServe's Electronic Mall in 1993, which became Liquor.com when uh, we bought that domain in 1998. So I, I've been online a long time. I know Rich uh, has as well. So we have a lot in common. What's really interesting um, is as much as everything changes, everything you know really stays the same. And I, and I can't wait to get Rich's take on this. Um, so for those of you who are familiar, we, we launched uh, Podcast Magazine roughly a month ago. Yeah, if you're watching, the, if you're watching the video of it, you know, here is the, the hard copy, literally an actual magazine, right? So everything old is everything new again. I can't wait to get Rich's take on, on that. I have a feeling he's going to be a, an advocate of what we're doing with this just because there's something about mm, tangibility and putting something into, into people's hands. Um, but we, we literally just got copies uh, maybe a week and a half ago or so. So I, this is the first time you guys are seeing the hard copy, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, you've seen the you've it's seen impressive. the electronic. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, come out of the gate uh, like gangbusters. And so let let let's do this. We'll have plenty of time to talk about uh, podcast magazine and all the fun stuff that's going on there. Uh, but let's let's do this because Rich is a busy guy. Uh, lots of things going on, and uh, want to be respectful of of his time. So Wade, let's uh, let's bring up Rich's volume. So Rich Sheffrin, man, welcome to Beyond Eight Figures. How you doing? I'm doing great, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm yeah. excited about our interview. Yeah, man, uh, us as well. Let's um, let, let's get the um, if you've listened to the show, you, you know we like to clarify this and just get this off the uh, off the table quickly here, uh, which is how do you meet the criteria for the show? So have you either exited from a business for more than ten million dollars? Do you currently own a business that grosses more than ten million annually, or a combination of the two? Yeah, I've done both. Um, I've, uh, I was, I grew a hypnosis business to about 13 and a half million and then exited. And, um, and then in my current business, uh, you know, we're over eight figures, but it's, uh, you know, I'm part of Agora. So that's, um, nine, 10, it's yeah. 10 figures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, Agora's got a, they're, they're the real deal. So what, what is your role with, uh, with Agora specifically? Um, well, you know, I it kind of actually, I guess it leads to us to like why I'm here in yeah. general. Um, I, you know, I've been working with Agora since about 2004 or five. And I kind of don't remember, but uh, so I've been working as a like consultant to uh, Bill and Mark, uh, more of the higher level of uh, the ownership structure of Agora. And uh, so I've kind of helped them grow throughout the years. I have a, uh, I think I'm the only one that has a uh, billion dollar testimonial and that comes from uh, Bill Bonner um, thanking me for helping grow Agora between 300 and 400% worldwide. Um, and then, you know, they tried to buy my business about, uh, oh, about in 2006 and I wasn't really interested. And then in 2012, I decided to kind of put my business on pause. I kind of reduced my team down to just two people and spent the next five years. I was kind of going through a little bit of a midlife crisis, like you could say, trying to figure out who I wanted to be uh, in the next phase of my life. And uh, when it was all said and done, 
I realized I wanted to stay in the same business, but I just wanted to do it differently. Mm. So I called Bill and Mark and said, it's time for me now to come inside Agora. And they were happy to have me. And they were having a lot of challenges with uh, a lot of the platforms. So they asked me to look at that. And uh, I got really busy with that. That sent me down a path of really studying AI and big data and working on a lot of systems in here on that. But that really wasn't going to solve the problems with the platforms. And so that then uh, kind of uh, the, the solution that I saw was to bring in like the top marketers from all around the world and all different platforms, all different methods and have them help us figure out the best way forward for, you know, a company that's a 1.7, $1.8 billion business. Mm -hmm. And uh, that then led right into, well, if I'm going to get in touch with all these people for Agora, maybe I should do something for the public the same exact way. And so that led to relaunching my business uh, just recently, just the last uh, couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, and I was uh, I was actually invited to to come down there and, and hang out yeah, with you guys. Yeah, I'd love sorry. to have you. Yeah, it was sorry. A fun time. Sorry, it didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> just I had literally just finished a two day intensive that people had paid ten thousand dollars a head to, to come and be with me, and it just I uh, was spent yeah. at that point. I would have had to take a red eye anyway. Just thanks for the invitation. But yes. um, what I will say is, is that um, a lot of people who came asked me if I would be willing to do it annually, and I am leaning towards yes. So this might become an annual thing. So yeah. We'll see. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of respect for you in, in this world. I think what, what most people, however, who know the name Rich Sheffron, uh, what, they, what they don't know is a lot of the backstory and really what's your first, and you alluded to the hypnosis center and, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of what you were doing there and then teaching it to others. So a lot of people don't really know the back backstory. Your, your family actually got you into the world of entrepreneurship, yes? Yeah, well, you know, my dad was this ruthless uh, business guy. Um, and so I learned a lot of business by him just dragging me around uh, my whole life uh, as a kid. You know, on the weekends, I would go with him to business deals and things like that. And one of the businesses he owned was a clothing store that was very popular in the 80s and then just kind of diminished um, late 80s um, or no mid 80s. And uh, the lease was running out on that store. It was never his. He never really ran it, per se. And uh, the lease was running out in about six to eight months. And they were the break even was three million and the store was doing about a million and a half. So they were just going to write out the lease and then close the store. I was in my senior year in college at that time. Uh, I had taken a year off because I had worked for Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting. I had won a bunch of Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting scholarships. So I took a year off and worked in all the different divisions then came back to finish for my senior year. And then my dad told me he was going to close the store. And I told him that I think I could turn it around. And I made a deal with my dad that if I dropped out of college and took over the store, if I could get it to better break, better than break even by the time the lease was uh, close to being uh, renegotiated, that he would, uh, that we would keep the store open and I would be his 50, 50 partner. And I would pay him back for any losses that I had that happened from the day I took over. Hmm. So that's what happened. And I took the store from a million and a half to seven and a half million. We were the first store to bring diesel into the United States. So it's a pretty brand that a lot of people know. We were actually diesels. Uh, Renzo Russo is the guy that owns diesel. We were his favorite store in the world. So if you worked for diesel, you had to stop at my store. Uh, my manager eventually became president of retailing for Diesel, yeah. and um, we uh, we were very immersed in the club culture. Uh, that was the niche that I decided to pursue when I took over that store to be successful. Yeah. Um, you know, I was competing with all the best retailers in the world. There was an Urban Outfitters down the block, and every other shopping. Uh, and that's you know, going to be shopping brand. And, and just, so just to kind of date stamp that? it, just to date stamp it for a second. So that's, that's going to be post studio 54 days, right? Cause you were in, you were in New yeah, York yeah, soon thereafter. Like this is like nineties. Yeah. So like, yeah. uh, you know, there at that time, the clubs were Twilo tunnel, the palladium and places like that. Peter Gation was the primary owner. of those. So it was, it was really and, influencer marketing back in the day, really, so to speak, right? Cause you had been able to attract a, a lot of the, the, the folks that had the followings and because they had the followings and they were popular and they would come to that store, not terribly dissimilar yeah. to, you know, the Kardashians and so on of, of today. No. Uh, maybe somewhat. I mean, we definitely had a lot of celebrities there. I mean, almost 
almost any celebrity you could name, I they were probably in my store. Um, some were regulars. Um, but uh, what really, when I looked at the store, the I think what the key to the success was is that it was really like I, I was into that culture myself at the time. And no matter how big the gap got, you know, no matter how big the gap is or Urban Outfitters, they couldn't, they, nobody knew that world better than me um, from a standpoint of retailing. And Urban Outfitters and Gap and all those stores, they came into our store all the time and they took notes. And yeah. sometimes they tried to knock us off, but it just did not fit in their store. Our store was lit like a club. And eventually we put DJs in the store. We started licensing the music and then we started selling a lot of CDs. So then I built a recording studio right in the middle of the store. Wow. And then we uh, started and that was right when electronic music was starting to get popular and it was an electronic label uh, and studio. And so then we were distributed by Warner Chapel in the U.S. and Europe and Avex Records in Japan. And mm. so we were making the music in the store. That was playing, you know, throughout the store, and uh, pretty much most of the big DJs back in those days uh, swung by and recorded stuff as well. So yeah. people who know Jeff Mills or Sasha and Digweed and these kinds of people, um, we're talking like the people recording, talking like Fat Boy Slim and, and those sort of days. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah techno right? and yeah. yeah. So that was the store, and then uh, what happened was, uh, and maybe this has been like an issue that some people have spoken about in the past, and you know, on your show. But uh, what happened was, is that a, a big uh, group of Japanese companies was actually, this isn't the part that maybe people have in common, but the, the part that follows. Um, this big group of Japanese companies wanted to license the concept. And so, and it was going to be a huge deal. I mean, the smallest of the companies was a multi-billion dollar company. And, you know, one of them was the biggest clothing manufacturer in Japan. One of them owns the real estate. Avex Records, my record distribution company, the my distribution company. So all big companies, and they were going to build 14 flagship stores and about 400 to 500 um, stores in the train stations. And the, the, the deal was about to be done. It ended up not happening because right when the deal was supposed to be done, that's when the Japanese economy uh, fell out. But uh, about a month before that, I had been flying back and forth to Japan, you know, making this deal happen. And now my dad was coming with me. Uh, and on the flight over, he's like, you know, you're not going to get your 50% of this. And I'm like, no, I, I don't know that. Um, in fact, that's the deal that we had. And he was like, well, then you would be making more than me, him, or your uncle, you know, his business partner. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, on this deal, yeah, I would. But you have other businesses. And... It was then and there that I was like, I don't know if a family business is right for me. And then I felt disheartened after the Japanese deal fell through. Mm. Uh, so then I was like, you know what? I, I'm never, I don't want to be in a business where I'm always going to be third, even when I'm supposed to be first. And so I gave the store and the record label back to my family and never looked back. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So dad actually stepped in at that point And when, when the money got real, he got... It got excited. Everyone got likes excited. a winner, right? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Rich, I think you, uh, um, you, you were jumping out of your chair there. There's already. so many things, but I want to... So first, just to close that with the family, what's interesting about that is Dad was about ready to walk away in the beginning. Oh, he, he, he was closing he was, down. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. obviously... At that point, you know, I'm not trying to get in the family business, but right. it, it was like it, it was more like he didn't want to acknowledge how much of what was happening was you making it happen. Mm. No, he he was fully acknowledging that. But, you know, what I have found is that I don't have this gene, but uh, the most successful people I know are extremely unreasonable. And what I mean by unreasonable is they don't really need a reason for what they're asking for. Mm. Like and my dad just thought that's the way it should be. Mm. Like, and I'm like, why? Because that's the way I think it should be. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, uh, he's passed away now. So, you know, whatever, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I just think that, uh, family dynamics sometimes can be harsh and, uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be, I didn't want that complication in my life. So, so one of, I was going to go to next on that was, so since we talk about starting, scaling, and exiting a business here on this show, and right. there's different people at different stages in that, and some of them don't necessarily even want to exit, it was interesting as you told that story 
how it didn't really seem like there was a plan that you were following. It seemed like the plan started to evolve, and it seemed like no matter what, though, a huge part of it was you playing in your lane of what you wanted to do. And so did you have those visions? Because I don't want to just assume that. Did you have the visions of like, okay, here's what's going to happen, and then I'm going to build a DJ, and then I'm going to get licensing? Or did that just kind of... Yeah. No, I would say most of that just came about as it came about. It wasn't necessarily planned. But what we did want to do is build a store unlike any other store. And that was very clear from the get-go, that we wanted a place that since we were in such a shopping mecca, we were on Broadway, uh, down by Soho. Um, so what I wanted was whether you liked the store or didn't like the store, you would remember the store. Um, and for the people whose demo had fitted, you know, louder music, like all the clothes were lit by stage lights, so it was very dark on top. The clothes were all brightly lit. Um, that, uh, that, yeah, so I wanted it so that it would be rememberable. Um, and, you know, all, and fortunately or unfortunately, we had no money to renovate. So all, so everything was memorable because we had to figure out clever ways to do cool things. Mm -hmm. And just in the sense of that, it just fostered creativity and innovation. And, and then, so that was on that side, but then on the other side, like we ran the business much better than it had been run before we put in open to buy systems. You know, when you're in retailing at the end of the day, you're managing your inventory. And we had about a million and a half dollars worth of inventory in the store. We turned it five times a year. So that adds up to seven and a half million, which meant that basically if you're turning the store five times a year, it means you have to sell 10% of your inventory every week. And so every Monday we would look at the sales from the previous week, anything that's selling more than 10%, you know, can we reorder and get on top of that fast? If it was selling less than 10%, can we move it to a different part of the store and see if it sells better? If not, it's got to be marked down because we've got to make room because new sales in retail and you want the experience of the shopper every time they come in to see different things. So they have a reason to come in the next time. Mm. And so, uh, yeah. And then we manage the salespeople with a series of metrics so that when their shifts were done, they had to fill them out. And that was like units per transaction, average sale sales per hour, things like that. And then if you were below the average for the store, um, then you were paired up with someone who is way above average for that stat and would be coached for two hours to see how they did it. So I don't want to pretend that it was just the positioning or the clothing, but um, that was certainly a part of it. Um, but then we, I think we ran it really well. And, uh, and then we listened to our audience, I guess, and we pivoted where... Uh, things seem to be going and what people wanted. And, uh, and yeah, so I think that it, you're partly right, but there were other parts where we were pretty, uh, very regimented. Hmm. Yeah. Mary, I think you were, you were going to ask something as well. Well, I was going to ask when you handed it back to your dad, did they mm -hmm. keep it going? Did they falter? They tried, they, they tried. tried and they failed <laughs> and they ran into the ground. Um, the first thing they got rid of was the open to buy system because it was a thousand dollars a month. Uh, they didn't see the value in that. Of course, if you don't manage your inventory right, uh, your inventory swells, then the store does not look new each time. And you're stuck with too much inventory. You can't rebuy what's selling well because you're stuck with too much. And so over time, yeah, they ran it into the ground, uh, which I figured would happen. But that's, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, I'm dealing with a merce. My dad was a mercenary businessman, so he got his lesson. I, that's all I could say. So going back, you dropped out of college to yeah. reinvigorate the store. Mm -hmm. I went back to college afterwards. Okay. <laughs> and flew in on Tuesday mornings and flew out Thursday nights. I was I was already a millionaire by that time. And uh, but my my uh, I was actually going to finish school at NYU because um, it was right across from the store. But when I took over the store, I we had to fire everyone. So me and a roommate from college did it. And uh, when I fired everyone, obviously, I was not going to have any free time to be going to college. So well, and my college wouldn't let me finish until so because I was they gave me permission to finish at NYU and then I didn't do it. And then five years later, I want to finish. They they said, no, you got to come back here. So I flew to Cleveland every week just to get my degree. It was one semester. Wow. Well, going back. So how did I mean, you were around that industry most of your life with your father, right? Kind of? Sort of. I mean, he wasn't really, he was more in the rag business, um, which is like, you know, uh, when people donate clothes to charity and things like that, eventually they get sold. 
the charities try and give away some of it, but then they sell the rest. And so they're, the used clothing business is actually a really big international business where, you know, containers of 2,000 pound bales of clothing are shipped to third world countries. So if you ever wondered why some kid in Africa or Ethiopia is wearing like a Puma or Nike shirt, that's how they got it. It's, you know, all the clothes from the U.S. get shipped all over the world. And there's a grade for, you know, second world countries. There's a grade for third world countries. There are different prices per pound, obviously, based on the grade, based on the on the item, et cetera. So that was my dad's main business. Well, my point for bringing that up is you figured it out probably pretty darn quickly because of the systems with the inventory, the metrics of the salespeople. I mean... Unless I'm a your voracious just, reader. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm a voracious reader. So, I read a couple books a week and uh, have for 20 years. So, yeah, I made it a point to read every book on retailing I could get my hands on. And so uh, I'd say within a year I had read every book on retailing. And that was out there back then. And so you and, walked away. Uh, so I felt like I had command. And, and so just so we're clear here, so you walked away, yeah. there, there was no there was no pot of gold, there was no nothing as far as the dad thing was concerned, you walked away, they they ended up burying it, whatever, there was no exit as far as that concerned, and you casually dropped in, you were a millionaire when you finished getting your degree. Yeah, just from the profits. The, yeah, just from the profits of the business, because when we were doing seven and a half million, you got to, well, I, what I didn't say was that half the clothes were used, and half the clothes were new, right? So the used clothing I got from Europe, um, so the used clothing was different from the used clothing you would find here, um, but uh, but high end. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like just You're- like for example, like uh, ski sweaters that were used for slalom racing. So they have the pads down. They look very futuristic. Yeah. Um, you know, I bought those from t- for twenty five bucks a piece in Europe. We sold them for like two hundred and fifty to three hundred bucks a piece in the store. And then, like on certain days, uh, like Dolce Gabbana used to come into the. Mm-hmm. Designers would come in at different times just to get inspiration. So one time they came in and must have bought over a hundred of those ski sweaters, right? Um, yeah. And yeah, so like it was, but the margins. The reason I'm bringing up the use is that like on the seven and a half million, uh, the average store, you know, works on a Keystone markup. They buy something for five, they sell it for ten, right? But we had a lot of clothing in the store that cost us your ten x on that, yeah. and we were selling for ten dollars, yeah. right? So on the seven and a half million. We could have like three million in profit even after paying for the rent, the mm-hmm. employees, and everything. So you know, like when we yeah. get three million in profit, I put a million and a half in my pocket, and I and so um, yeah. So we had a couple of years of that until I decided I was going to hit eject. Mm-hmm. Let, and let's talk about that for a second because there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who who put everything back into the business, don't even think about taking anything off the table for themselves. I mean, they may pay themselves uh, a little bit. What, what was your rule of thumb? Like, how did you look at it? Because I think it's an, it's an important conversation that we haven't really had yet here um, on the show. We've had a lot of really interesting entrepreneurs on. This is the first time right. that it's really become apparent uh, that you're paying yourself for, I mean, the Michael McCallowitch, you know, uh, approach there of, you know, pay yourself first, profit first, I mean, whatever, you know, whichever book you want to read from him, it's a great, great right. read. But, Talk, talk about how did you determine well, I what I, you could I, take I get, off the table? Right. And I get your question. And what I would say is, is that um, I still had to learn that lesson. I learned that lesson later on. In this particular case, because like we were partners on this thing and the deal was I got 50% of the profits. It was just straightforward that mm-hmm. that profit was dropping down to me. Mm-hmm. In my second business later on, I, I did not take profit out enough. And I paid a price for that. Um, so by the time I did my third business, I then actually created, I'm not a very money motivated guy. So, um, and I have some flaws and I think we all do, but, um, but I designed my businesses like around my flaws so they could be successful without me having to change. And one of my flaws as a entrepreneur, you could say, is that I'm not money motivated. An entrepreneur should be money motivated and a business definitely needs to be money motivated. So in my last business, you know, uh, the current one now just in Agora, but I had a very aggressive profit sharing where I gave the team 20%, I gave my right-hand person 10%, and I took 20%, and that was monthly. Um, And the 50% stayed in the business for growth, but if I'm going to give my team 20%, I'm definitely taking 20%. And it was a way for me to keep 
taking money out of the business because I found that in my second business, the hypnosis business, um, I left all the money in the in the accounts, yeah. and it's a lot easier to write checks off the business account than it is to write a check personally back into the business account. For sure. And so that has always been my preference since then to keep the business at a like at a minimal level, not not that minimal, but not excessive because it's too easy for that money to be spent in the business. And I'm just putting it in a personal account and I can put it back anytime, mm -hmm. but it just creates that extra, like that extra self check. Like, am I doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. And maybe if I've done it three or four times in a row and nothing's coming back out, maybe I need to really reevaluate if I'm putting good money after bad. So, so. It, so just, just to play that through. So it's kind of a 50, 50 formula. If I'm hearing you, then it's 50% of the actual price. So a, a million dollar business annually nets a hundred grand. I'm just using real simple numbers here right. because I want Mary to be able to follow this. So a million dollars oh, in a hundred, a hundred grand that total. Nice. It's Mary math. I'm gonna, <laughs> all right. So, um, so 50, 50, so 50 grand of the hundred right. stays in the business to continue to fund the business. 50 grand mm -hmm. comes out 20% to the team, 10% to your right-hand person, 20% to you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And that's what I'm saying, except one other thing. Um, we also had a base of profit that, which wasn't high. Uh, it was 50000 a month that the business just had to make. Um, so everything was above that, you know, because oh, I got you. the business just needs to. So, but, uh, so that 50K was the additional cushion. So 600 a year yeah. as an additional cushion. And then the 50%, 50% on top yeah. of that, 50% staying and in that, the business, 50% exactly. coming out. And that was great because hmm. we gave our financials every week to the team. And, you know, the team, especially the last week, was well, really the last two weeks were really racking their brain about how do we maximize profit this month. Mm -hmm. and, and so it just worked out really well. And, you know, in our kind of businesses, there can be immense profit because at the end of the day, we're selling something that really doesn't have a cost of goods to create yeah. other than time of like my time or someone else's. So we're selling air at the end of the day, the profit margins are unreal. Um, so yeah, you know, yeah. the profits were also pretty big. And so the team really, even though they were well-paid, you know, they all had good salaries. They made more from the uh, profit sharing, which really meant I had, you know, I wasn't a big team. I had 12 people working on my team, but they were all partners mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah, and they felt that way and they guarded the business that way. And when I made a bad hire, they wanted that person out because they didn't want to share their distributions with that person because that person wasn't contributing as much. So it worked well for me. Hmm. Interesting. I'm interested in what does motivate you. So many entrepreneurs, I mean, cause you've built some big things and not being money right. motivated and building big things. Like this could be an interesting lesson for someone. I like to do exciting things. I like to make an impact. And I like to help people. Uh, and I like to help people when I feel like that help is necessary. So, you know, I have a lot of examples of that. But like, uh, just to give an example, um, I had a, I have a coaching program. It's back live again now, but I had a coaching program for years. And that's the same coaching program that a lot of well-known names went through from Ryan Dice of Digital Marketer to Russell Brunson of ClickFunnels to Todd Brown. I mean, Mike Phil Sam, lots of big markers. And uh, I always charge uh, $3,000 for my coaching program. Lots of other people charge 15, 25,000, et cetera. I charge 3,000. And I was available every week uh, for a Q&A call. So any customer could call and ask me questions. And you know, I charged, at least back then, like $3,000 an hour. This was a way that people could ask me their advice, like anything they wanted about their business and they didn't have to pay that. They just had to pay the 3000 for the program. And I felt like, you know, in a world where a lot of people are getting like hustled into 15 and $25,000 coaching programs being sold by like a coaching floor in Utah and then being coached by someone who's never done it themselves, let alone taught a lot of other people how to do it. Um, that I was serving a purpose for these people because I would be giving them true, honest advice for a lot less than what other people were, were taking from them. And I would tell them the truth. Like, you know, I have no problem telling someone that it was a bad business idea to start with or whatever I feel, right? Um, so I feel like uh, that, that motivates me. 
Um, and I also like, yeah, I guess it's an ADD thing because I have ADD. I like to just do things differently than others. Um, even a, there's just some bent in me that wants to do things differently. Mm -hmm. um, so, which helps from a marketing standpoint because it makes it easier to stand up. But uh, yeah, I would say, and um, I went when I was going through, just to get a little bit more context to that, when I was going through my midlife crisis, um, what part of what tripped it off was is that I was like 38 and I'd already achieved pretty much everything I wanted to in life. I didn't, you know, I don't have dreams of having like a private jet and stuff like that. That's I live a really good life. I have a house. <clears> in my hands. I have a house. Yeah. Mark doesn't have a jet either. You know, so, you know. um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I have a great life. I love it. Um, and, but I don't have, I don't need to be, you know, a billionaire and yeah. So I, I just, uh, I think that I lost my train of thought on that. So um, you were just talking yeah, about what motivates bad. you. Yeah. So I, I think that, Oh yeah. So when I, what I realized was that after achieving all my goals, like, I wasn't as happy as I thought, right? And actually, I wasn't happy at that time. And I really questioned goals because it seemed like, okay, like I'm going after goals, but when I achieve them, I'm happy for like a week or two. And then it's like life is back to normal. And like, so what's the point? And so then I thought like, I'm not going to have goals. That was not smart at all. <laughs> um, and because uh, then I was just purposeless. And then I realized that really, if, if, if achieving the goal isn't really the thing, uh, then I also had another realization that I felt most alive though, when I was in pursuit of something. So all I really needed was a goal to inspire me today. And if a goal inspires me today to, to get out of bed and take action, then it's good enough. And if it doesn't, then it's not good enough because the only reason for, to, since getting the goal doesn't really do anything, um, you know, you're happy for a week or two. What's more important to me is that I feel in pursuit and alive and engaged. And that's just about, you know, the chase, you could say. And so nowadays, the goal is much tighter. It's about, you know, it's about what is going to get me out of bed in the morning, excited to be moving towards that mm -hmm. period. And, uh, and it's helped me with a lot of entrepreneurs, too, because, you know, I've worked with entrepreneurs who, you know, their goal was to make 2 or $3 million that year. And for whatever reason, that just wasn't that inspiring to them. But if we restructured their day and the goal was to make 10, bring in $10,000 worth of business, you know, and then your day is over for the, some, that was more, that was more, sure. you know, exciting and more compelling. And now every day was like a game. Yeah. And so, you know, nowadays when I coach entrepreneurs, like they, if they tell me their goals and they're not making any movement towards them, I tend to default to, you probably don't have the right goals because the whole purpose is just to, to, to stimulate action. Yeah. Hmm. I, um, I have a, a five-word mantra that you're welcome to, to borrow, which seems very much in line with what, uh, with what you're saying. But uh, that, that mantra is, I am what today is. And, is, you know, it's I'm like... I'm going to steal that. Right? <laughs> and it's true. You know, I, I am what today is. You know, I mean, it's just it's really just as simple as that. You know, and whatever you pour into your, to your business, whatever you pour into your family, whatever you pour into your friends, I mean, it's... Right. You know, it, some people talk about it being the power of the present, et cetera, but... Ultimately, at the end of the day, when you, you know, when you when you look back on that day, you want to be able to go to sleep knowing, you know, did I, yeah, whatever, whatever those metrics are for you, you know, did did you did you hit full on, on whatever those metrics are for you? So anyway, so, you know, so it's interesting to talk about uh, doing things different. And um, and it's funny, I don't even I don't even know if you know this, but um, part of and I, and I give credit where credit is due always part of the reason why I am doing today what I am doing today um, largely came out of a failed partnership with uh, Alex Mandosian. So okay, I know, uh, yeah, I know you've known Alex for, uh, for a number of years. Um, but, you know, for years, I kind of fought this whole wearing the hat of somebody who is really entrenched in this world of podcasting. I mean, I had an event, I had right. a podcast, I was helping people, but I just didn't want to wear that, that hat. And, as more and more podcasts get launched, as a matter of fact, I just saw a stat today uh, that crazy. shows we're over 902,000 podcasts as of today, uh, which means 250,000 podcasts have been launched in the last uh, 14 months. So it's uh, just wow. incredible. And I, and, I, and I don't have, you know, I mean, what we do here is great, but we don't have like this massive platform 
where we can simply push people from one platform to the other and bounce them into our ecosystem, right? So it's it's a tough game. And mm-hmm. when you have a, a, a podcast specifically or whatever business you're in, you know, the, the question is what conversation do you really want to insert yourself into? How do you become the, the, the epicenter, the, the hub of that wheel so that everyone in a particular industry defaults to at least including your name in that conversation? So it wasn't going to happen for for me, for you know, for us with what we were doing here. I mean, great shows and everything, but we realized, and I realized quite quickly there that like if 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 I really want my name to be in the conversation around podcasts, it's not going to happen by having a podcast. It's got to happen Probably by true. something else. And so you know, I'm just really just real curious what your what your Thanks take is on yeah. Podcast Magazine, which which is really dedicated towards podcast fans you know there's a lot of great industry rags out there and so on but nothing that really takes readers beyond the microphone into the lives of the podcasters they listen to and the shows and stories they can't get enough of stunned when it didn't exist had to buy the domain it was a little bit of a you know a little bit of a stretch but not really um Mm -hmm. and it just felt like it was a it was a good risk so you talk about doing things differently and and perhaps podcast magazine as an example what what do you advise your your clients to do in that regard in terms of inserting themselves into the conversation and kind of being the hub of the wheel so that if they really are hell bent on on being a part of a of a particular industry how do they get into that into that conversation there's a bunch of things and um i wrote a free report that i'm sure as people can find it's all over the place um maven manifesto which i wrote with jay abraham um and we wrote it together because um, I've been behind more online gurus, both in internet marketing and in a lot of other fields uh, than anyone else. And Jay has been behind more offline gurus than basically anyone else. And so we talked, we compared notes and, you know, I was a Jay protege, not, I never went to his protege program, but I was, Jay was a mentor of mine. He's like Jay Abraham and Mark Ford were both like secondary fathers to me. And uh, so I've always taught, so, so yeah, so there's a bunch in there and that (laughs) that breaks down, uh, like, you know, your backstory and a bunch of elements that are necessary, but something that is not in there, uh, that is, that I do work with when I'm working with people is different is always better than better. And that you cannot assess better. It's subjective and it's hard to tell until you buy. And by then it's too late if you're trying to sell. So if you can't use better really as a way of being better in the moment, you default to different, but different in a way that, you know, that is, that advances things, right? Because you can be different in bad ways too. So yeah, I try and do things always different and, and a magazine to the consumer is certainly different and if it catches on, then that would be your point uh, in the middle of the spoke. Yeah. Yeah. So now the question is, is though, Steve, what are you going to do to make everyone know about that magazine? Mm. You know, that. Build yes, a nightclub. Really <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to build a, a retail store on Broadway <laughs> that plays music. I don't suggest and, that. You yeah, don't suggest that. All right, fine. <laughs> I don't suggest that. Yeah, right. So, so let's um let, let's do let's do this because there's there's so much ground that we could cover. Um, but you know, if, if somebody comes into and and you know, again, just there's there's a lot of people in your position who have taken the knowledge that they have, they've uh, benefited from that, they've profited from that and they've gone off and they're, you know, they're just doing whatever it is that they're doing without the give back. What I, what I admire about where you are in your career now is you have all of this knowledge and you've come back to the point of saying, I want to, I want to help others just avoid a lot of the brain damage that I had to endure, avoid a lot of the trial and the tribulation. And and so it's interesting because, you know, you talk about, and to Richie's question, you know, what, what really does put fire in your soul, what really does, you know, get you motivated to do what you do. Um, and, and, I, and I can tell just in how you talk and in watching what you're doing here around your recent work that uh, really helping others avoid a lot of the same mistakes that, that you endured is, is not only, yeah, of course, sure. it's, it's admirable, but also... Um, you know, it's just, it's so needed because a lot of the folks, like I said, who get to that point, stop giving back. And, and what's interesting now is you're combining so much of the past with, with a lot of the future, right? Because the conversation that you're having around future tech 
is is really interesting, and it's a conversation that a lot of people, number one, aren't having, and number two, just aren't even uh, aware of. So how does your your back, you know, your experience in in sort of the old school world of, of online marketing and even retail and so on and so forth, how right. does that work then benefit the work that you're doing now and around guiding folks, especially as it relates to future tech? Okay. Um, well, one thing I would say, and, I, and I, it, it feels awkward even to say this, but I keep hearing it from everyone around me, so I think it is a factor, is that, but I... I've always, in, I've always tried to leave people better off than when I found them, period. And that doesn't matter if, even if someone screws me over. Like, I just don't ever want anyone to th have anything where I came into their life or they met me and they're worse off for it. And that, I guess, has paid tremendous dividends. It wasn't, you know, I, it was never a strategy. Um, it's just how I like to live my life. And I think it's in reaction to some of the things I saw, like with my dad and stuff. So, um, so, you know, when I was going to do this live stream, you know, at the cigar bar and I asked people like to come in, like everyone was kind of amazed at how many people just flew in because I asked. Um, and when I first got online, just to kind of dovetail back to what you were asking, um, when I started online, like, okay, I had been successful in the clothing business and the music business. Uh, we don't really have time to talk about the hypnosis business, but I was the most successful in the hypnosis business. And then I got online and for two years, I really failed. Like I struggled. Like, I mean, you know, I made some money, but not anywhere near the money I was making before. And I was working way harder and I was going into the online environment with an anti-employee kind of feeling because like I, my hypnosis business grew so big that making the payroll was huge. And the idea of not having payroll was just so appealing to me. But for two years, I really struggled and I was pulling all nighters and I thought there was something wrong with me. And I just couldn't understand like why I couldn't get it to work. And so that's a very present still in my life. I mean, I like I, right now I weigh, I think like 190, um, which is like my normal weight, but at that time, I ballooned up to 250, just mm. sitting in front of my computer all the time. And uh, and there, it's like, if I could fit, and I have, I guess, a, a, a nice size ego about myself. So I'm like, if I could get online, someone who's been successful, and I failed, then I assume that that happens to a lot of people. And there's this quote that I thought E.E. E. Cummings said, but I've seen it attributed to too many people, so I don't really know who said it. And it's, that which is most personal is most general. And... It's so true, and I could give you a hundred examples of that. But like, it's the things that we're least likely to share with other people that are going on in other people. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so you know, I think part of uh, I've always believed that to be true. It's it's one of the guiding principles of the way I market, and uh, and people tell me like when I used to write my free reports and stuff that it felt like you're looking over my shoulder and I wasn't, I was just writing to my old self and my old self had all those things in common with everyone else. And so I think that it, people, a lot of people get online and they try and grow a business without any knowledge of business. And the only thing they know about business is like what they read in sales letters. And that's not true business and it's not the real story. And so they're somewhat naive in certain ways and, and, or they don't, you know, if everything's important, nothing is. So there's too many priorities. There's too marketing centric, trying too many things and being mediocre to everything. Um, and I just believe that there's easier ways and there's more effective ways. Mm. And it does, it pains me to see someone uh, working so hard and not getting results. And it makes me angry to see someone sell stuff that doesn't work because they're not, they would be so much better. I used to kick people out of my coaching program for this. Like if I felt they were selling something that was not real, right? Like they wanted to sell a copywriting course, but they're not a copywriter. So they're just going to like consolidate other people's courses or something like that. Mm -hmm. My response was always like, you know what? It's just better if you steal their money, steal their money, because at least you're not robbing them of their dream, their time. And like the promises they make their family, that's going to be different because you are the problem. And that type of thinking is the problem. It's worse than stealing. Yeah. You're not only stealing their money, you're stealing their hope and their dream. And, uh, cause I remember when I was there. Um, so yeah, I, that, that stuff exists way too much in our industry and, uh, and it gives our industry a bad name. And I try to rail against that mm -hmm. as best I can. Mm -hmm. 
So let let's do this as we as we head towards uh, ra- wrapping up here, man. What uh, I, I mean, obviously, I know that's uh, that's a huge concern, but uh, on the surface, I mean, say it again. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, sorry, I was going to. Yeah. Go no, no. Just saying. I mean, and on the surface, I mean, it certainly appears as though you've got everything that that anyone could ever want at at this point, and you're working for one of the you know just an amazing organization not working with, but I mean, work, you have a, with yeah. Agora, I mean, Agora's, you know, obviously I work so with and work for yeah, both. Exactly. So, <laughs> so the, the, the question is though, what, how, how do you think you're, you're most misunderstood? What, and, and really what still keeps you up at night? You know, I just want, want to try to humanize you a little bit well, here for those yeah, who don't really I, know. Well, you. I would say that it, it, what keeps me up at night is more the answer to the question you were asking, the real answer to the question you're just asking me. And it's about big tech. I like, I love using Google. I love I use Gmail, you know, I'm not a big social media person. Um, but, uh, but Facebook is good for what it is. And I love Amazon. I buy pretty much everything I buy is on Amazon, Mm -hmm. but these companies have gotten way too big and, uh, and I'm a libertarian by nature. So this is like so weird for me to say, but these companies have done a, a tremendous amount of damage to small business. Uh, in fact, there are less small businesses being started every year uh, than the year before. Most people aren't aware of that. There's less VC funding now. Um, all 50 state attorney generals are going after uh, Google and Facebook. Google got caught buying all the data from MasterCard. Google and Apple got caught with a contract that they wouldn't hire away each other's employees or even hire someone who wanted to leave from those companies. Um, the data breaches and and on and on and on. And it's like, and nowadays you can get kicked out of Facebook. And if your business is relying on Facebook, that's a problem. Uh, you know, the drop of a, like, like that. Yeah. And, uh, our, and same with Google. Our ads for podcast magazine got shut down. Go figure. <laughs> yeah. So this is a problem. It and is. I think I think that uh, I think that uh, I think the government's going to go after one of them in the in this year. Mm-hmm. I think by this time next year, one of them, there's no innovation. The all these companies now are in the maturity stage of their life. They're all about sucking as much cash out now as possible. There is like, what is the blast innovation of any of these companies? What is new at Google? What did they what have they brought out to the world? What is Facebook, what has Apple brought to the world? Like what after the iPad and the watch, what, what have they done? Mm-hmm. And Google used to be a search engine, right? And a search engine is where you go to go someplace else. Google is trying to build a walled garden. More than 50% of the traffic that goes to Google does not leave Google's infrastructure anymore. Mm. So they scrape small businesses content. And that's why people go to Google because they have that, right? And now in the answer box or in the other things that they do, more than 50%, like that happened last year, they crossed that threshold, more than 50% who go to Google do not leave the page off a of search, which means that now they're a walled garden, just like Facebook, and they are moving more and more towards that. Also, the Wall Street Journal did an expose about three weeks ago, uh, exposing that Google has changed their algorithm, even though they claim they haven't. They changed their algorithm several times to reward their own properties, like YouTube, etc. Mm-hmm. So these companies lie, They've gotten away with ridiculous amounts. They spend, they're the second biggest spender of lobbying under big pharma, right? They've changed laws. They changed the copyright law after Napster so that they wouldn't get sued by having everyone's listings on the page. They have a tremendous clout and they do tremendous damage to small businesses. On Amazon, they will copy anything that is good uh, and make their own version of it. Mm -hmm. I've had several clients whose businesses have gone through that and you know, Google is not far behind them. Google wants to get into the real estate business. They want to get into all these other businesses. This is all about now expansion and, and making as much profit as possible yeah. at the expense of small business. And that's really a shame because it shouldn't be the aspiration of entrepreneurs to build something to sell to Google, Facebook, or Amazon. But that's kind of where things are currently going mm-hmm. if you want to build like a tech business, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Snapchat, uh, was making ground, and what did uh, what did Facebook do? They bought Instagram, yeah. And uh, and now, you know what the video of Facebook is? It's it's you know it's it's Instagram Stories, like yeah. it's not Snapchat, right? Yeah. So they, these companies should not be allowed to buy 
uh, other companies anymore. Like maybe they shouldn't be able to do an acquisition over a hundred million. Mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. but they have they have such an advantage, and it's a different time than like the twenties when the Gilded Age or any of those times, because the they have the data, and that data is insane, and it gives them such a competitive. Google knows everything about all of us, right? They know everything we've ever typed into a search engine. Mm-hmm. And people type stuff into search engines that they don't even share with their best friends. For sure. If you use a Chrome browser, they know every website you've ever been. They know everything you've ever typed in, right? On YouTube, they know exactly what you watch. If you use Gmail, they know every email that you get. Mm-hmm. That's all stored. Like, mm-hmm. G- like Google has more information on every single person in the world than anyone else. And Amazon has two thirds of the U.S. population as Prime members, which more people have Prime than will vote in the next election. That's insane. And like these things are problematic for small business. There's Mm -hmm. no doubt in my mind Mm -hmm. they're they're causing damage to small business. So that's what keeps me up at night. And we even have like you know Agora has problems with it. Yeah, we can fight better because you know we can we have a ton of attorneys on you know, retainer, et cetera. But the average small business is out of business when that happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a shame. And it's, I, I'd say that keeps me up at night because it's really, I'm conflicted as a libertarian. Like, I believe that the government should stay out of everyone's business. Yeah. But like here, I like, I just, I don't see how this ever gets resolved well yeah. unless someone steps in. And just, you know, we're older. So we have these kind of, I remember when we rented a phone from AT&T and you could not buy a phone. Mm-hmm. There was no, like, until the government went after Bob Bell, you couldn't buy a phone. Right. And then as soon as you could buy a phone, then there were cordless phones and there were all that. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't be a Google if the government hadn't gone after Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Internet Explorer was the number one uh, browser back then. Mm-hmm. Now Chrome has 65% of the market, yep. right? There'd be no Google. There'd be none of this if the government hadn't gone after Microsoft. So I think it's time. Yeah. I think it's time the government start going after these companies they pay less in taxes than all of us because like apple licenses all their tech stuff to this island in jersey so they end up paying like 11 percent mm-hmm. i think facebook pays 17 percent google pays somewhere in that vicinity too they pay mm-hmm. less in taxes they get all these benefits they break laws that don't have to pay the consequences and they do a lot of damage to small business yeah well that's uh appreciate the insight on that and you know obviously there's so much more that we could dive into there uh i believe it is uh the website is chefrin 2024.com uh, <laughs> is that the uh is that no you're not you're, you get it okay no, no, I, have yeah. too, I have too many skeletons in my closet from my club days uh so all brother. of a sudden like i would you know, going out <laughs> to raves and stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure there are photos and, uh, yeah. right. No, all good, man. So we're going to, we're going to let you jump here. Uh, strategicprofits.com uh, is definitely where you guys want to go. Strategicprofits.com. And, uh, that's where you can find out lots of great stuff about rich chef friend, rich. Thanks so much, man. It's really, uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor to be able to connect with you here. And, uh, and we'll pleasure. definitely get, uh, we'll get together in person, uh, you know, for one of the future. I'd love events. that. Absolutely. I really love that because actually um, I really want to start a podcast myself Mm. and um, I've been itching to do it and just trying to figure out uh, the right way to do it. Uh, And yeah, well, just some of the other particulars. So I'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah. Just just know this where the other folks will charge you, you know, for all that stuff. They say they're your friend and then they're going to send you a bill. Just call me and I'll help you. So, you know, happy, Uh happy to do it. All right, my friend, we're going to let you jump, and uh, and we'll wrap up here. Talk to you later, sir. Oh, man, so much that good was stuff, awesome. right? I um, I just want to do Look this real notes. quick. I know, right? I got this whole page. All right, so ready? Um, design your business around your flaws. Different is always better than better. If everything is important, nothing is. That which is most personal is most general. Oh, man. I love that one. Right? It, I didn't get it at first, and then... And was then like, he explained it. I like that. Yeah. All right. Wow, we could have kept going for days and days on that one. Definitely check out Rich Sheffern at strategicprofits.com. For Mary Golay and Richie Ote, I am Steve Olsher. Talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Eight Figures.